Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace Podcast, where peace crosses the mind, the show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we are talking about working at the intersection of media, technology, and facilitating behavior changes toward ending violence. Our guest today is Lindsay Branham. Lindsay is the founder of Novo, an incubator for art that inspirates human connection in imaginative ways. She is an Emmy-nominated filmmaker and social scientist, leveraging media and technology to end violence and human rights abuses. Her research investigates the link between media and behavior change. Her current focus is exploring the efficacy of virtual reality to reduce prejudice in Central African Republic. Her VR film, Even in the Rain, premiered at the Venice Biennale, and her VR film, The Hidden, premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. She holds a BA in journalism from the University of Southern California and completed the Harvard Medical School's Global Mental Health Trauma and Recovery Certificate Program. She also holds a Master of Philosophy in Social Psychology from the University of Cambridge and is currently a PhD candidate in psychology at the University of Cambridge. Welcome, Lindsay, to the Think Peace podcast. It's so great to have you here today. Thank you for having me. So to get started, could you give a little bit of background on what got you interested in working at the intersection of media, technology, and facilitating behavior changes toward um, ending violence? How did you get involved in that work at that intersection, and what does that involve? Yeah, it really kind of started for me... um, in 2007, I was living in Eastern DRC. I had my very first job out of college. I graduated from journalism school, broadcast journalism, wanted to be an investigative journalist, investigative reporter. And I had this opportunity to work for a human rights organization in the Congo and report on their programming and their international work. They were doing kind of every sector of international relief and development. And Eastern DRC is a very complex place with a lot of intersecting dynamics. What's led to, at that time, the deadliest war in the world since World War II. And here I am, 24 years old, really having no idea how to understand, much less kind of engage in a really community-oriented way to help provide solutions that could be meaningful. But I had been stringing a bit for CNN reporting on the ongoing conflict, and a lot of my time would be spent interviewing survivors of violence in IDB camps. At that time as well, Eastern DRC was the most dangerous place in the world for a woman or a girl. Really, really, really horrendous Um, levels of sexual violence. So I would be interviewing people, having them share with me about what they'd been through with the hopes that reporting on this would inspire an international response and kind of trickle back um, help and aid. And the more I did that, the more conversations I found myself in with people that did not want to tell what had happened to them. They felt really abandoned by the international community, really frustrated with seeing yet another white face sitting in front of them, asking them to recount the most traumatic things that had happened in their lives with really no way of knowing that there would be anything different 
any change coming for them in particular. And all of this made a lot of sense to me. It started feeling kind of incongruous just in my own being to sit with these survivors, these incredible people that um, really had been through the worst things anyone could even imagine. Um, And I had been following a young boy who had been in a series of different armed groups. And I'd met him in 2007, along with 10 other young boys, about 12, 13 years old, they had been fighting with the Mai Mai, which is a rebel group in the East. There's, you know, at any given time, several dozen different armed groups operating in Eastern DRC. And so I started documenting his experience. He then went back to fight for the Mai Mai, and then he actually was recruited by the National Army um, in, in DRC and was being trained as kind of a special forces elite unit. And through UNICEF, we were able to track down where he was. He was being trained in this specific brigade in, in another province, really far away from where he grew up. And long story short, we were able to secure his release from the National Army and advocate for that and get his official um, demobilization completed. And I was interviewing him again for a follow-up inside his home in his village and he was sharing about how hard it was for him to be back and the other kids didn't understand what he'd been through the other families he was facing a lot of stigma a lot of new mental health challenges and feeling like it might even be better for him to return to where he had been it felt safer in a lot of ways and it just hit me that the people that needed to understand his experience were not the western audiences I was creating this film for but were his own communities. And this idea of how to work with someone's story and then screen that locally, this kind of circular mobile cinema approach started arising for me as something that could be really meaningful as a way to merge technology and um, intervention and behavior change and violence reduction. And I had come across Search for Common Grounds work a wonderful violence um, prevention reduction organization. And they had been screening a documentary about sexual violence through Eastern DRC and holding these workshops. So that then kind of came to me as well as like, oh, this is an example of how this has been done. And so I wrote my first uh, proposal, grant proposal to do what I called mobile cinema project in Northeastern DRC with children who were returning from a from the Lord's Resistance Army and facing stigma when, when, when they got back. And so we created a fiction film to protect their identities, you know, showing who they are around <laughs> the region would put them at risk, um, along with a workshop that helped reduce mental health symptoms and depression and anxiety, and um, all facilitated by people from the community. And And then we had a um, researcher from Queens University, Belfast, come and design a randomized control trial study to really measure the impact of that approach because it was really quite different, both using the fiction film and then also the methodology of not formally addressing trauma in the program or the materials whatsoever, but still seeing, measuring if trauma um, symptoms could, could be reduced. I'm curious, two things as you just you described that, that kind of came up for me. And one of them 
was how you were looking at how you might write a story or tell a story for an audience, you know, a Western audience who's not living that experience. And how then instead you're writing it for it to inform or to hopefully you know, to inform and have people know what's going on. But you're doing the cinema or a story that is, as you mentioned, for a different community, the community that's living there, but not just to inform, that's part of it. But you're also using it as a mode to help support transformation or, or healing from trauma. So I'm curious how you, in the context of DRC and the community, how did you bring your knowledge and skills and work with those there to contextualize it and have it be of a way that could be measured and helpful? Even the word mm -hmm. trauma is, you know, you know that, you know, our experience and how we might use the word may not be the same in mm -hmm. the country in which we may be working in right. conflict prevention. Right, yeah, exactly. So it's this whole field of kind of narrative science in a way of how to craft story narrative character in such a way that introduces um, audiences to new alternatives. So in this space, there's counter propaganda work that's been done or alternative narratives. I would consider our work more along the lines of alternative narratives. So instead of coming in with a direct counter argument, which hasn't really been shown in the literature to be that effective because it can just kind of more, it can entrench people in their previously polarized positions. Whereas an alternative narrative can introduce cognitive dissonance. Aesthetic distance is also a tool that, that is really useful in that inviting someone to imagine their life experience, but through the proxy of a character creates some distance and separation in which they can access themselves through accessing this fictional character in a way that doesn't feel so confronting or too um, direct or oppressive or invasive. And people's experiences are so delicate and difficult and layered and we cannot assume what would be the best way or most effective ways especially as an outsider of how that person should quote unquote <laughs> be processing or dealing with what they've been through. There's an incredible host of community resources that already exist of ways that are supportive um, for people to, to kind of manage and build from the difficulties that they've gone through in order to move forward. They're doing that every single day. They're surviving. So in, coming up with narratives, it's less, it's definitely not about let's show you what happened to you. They don't need to know that. <laughs> and it's more about sitting with community leaders, community members, civil society. We create kind of like a, you know, brain trust, let's say, of people from the community to first just brainstorm, okay, what's happened? What do you consider is the biggest kind of challenge or problem right now? Let's say in this example, the disconnect of children coming back from abduction and the stigma they're experiencing. That's what they're identifying. So let's dream of what kind of other narratives could exist. What would you like to see happen to the community? What would you like to see your family relationships look like? What What is possible for these kids? And then from all of that, we start considering what might a story be that could touch on that and then kind of build towards a moral imagination, let's say. So use John Paul Lederach's phrasing. So helping people kind of envision a possibility and 
um, allowing that spaciousness to spark something that feels hopeful and not hopeful in a false promise kind of way, like this is going to solve everything, but hopeful in this is coming from within the community as something they're hoping for, they want. And so we just kind of then take that, put it all into like a, you know, three act fiction structure from a film craft perspective, and then do the work of character development and all that good juicy film stuff <laughs> um, to bring it to life so that it's not just an informational piece either. It's not just, you know, a PSA or wash your hands, do this, do that, which has been used in public health messaging for a long time and is obviously really important and necessary. But in our experience dealing with, well, behavior change is the hardest thing to measure or predict in social science. It's just almost impossible. So trying to do work in that arena, I think requires really different approaches that build on imagination, build on introducing um, yeah, cognitive dissonance and allowing magic to happen too, not just from a science perspective. These things are mysterious, what someone can see in a character. And we've now been doing this in different contexts for a number of years. And for example, in Southern India, this project we did around reducing bonded labor, the film is about a, a girl named Priya, that's the character's name. This film has been screened in over 10 to over 10,000 girls in over 400 villages and within a workshop that lasts for about a year. Now you go into these villages, people talking about Priya, like Priya is real. Priya is their hero. They love Priya. They want to be Priya. You know, you create this also hero kind of like a hero from the community. This is, these are delete communities. They don't get a lot of media in their language about them. So also just introducing a hero that comes from the community that is them is really a beautiful thing. You're talking about the delete community from the caste system, which is within the caste system, the, the lower caste of some call untouchables in some communities is what you're talking about. So I can imagine how powerful that would be when you're talking about communities who are now being engaged and engaging themselves within the process. And there's something also that I caught that was really interesting. You're not just talking about screening and then maybe a one-time workshop where then people talk about it because you talk about behavioral change is difficult to measure because it's difficult to do and then difficult to measure. It's all, you know, both sides mm -hmm. of the coin. But what's really interesting is you look at it, you said over a year. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're, you're really tracking and are you engaging and facilitating discussions with the same communities? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Can you walk through what that looks like? So the film is shown and then there's facilitated discussion, but also the component you mentioned, which is really powerful, is it's not just an intellectual discussion of talking. You're talking about also they're experiencing it and internalizing mm -hmm. it. And then that's where you talk about the magic sometimes you can see happening because it's it's an open-end process, but it's a, it's a long-term process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And each project has had a different structure and a different like exposure um, contact frequency. So, but in this particular project in Southern India with an organization called the Freedom Fund out of the UK, and they're doing really incredible work in a variety of hotspots around the world, um, reducing modern day slavery. 
And in Southern India, they're focusing on reducing bonded labor. And so the film we made, Call Me Priya, it's about 35 minutes long. And it tells the story about a young girl from the Dalit community who ends up having to work in a mill because her dad took out a loan that is impossible to pay back, which is often how this happens. Families get extorted and then their kids end up having to go to work essentially to support the family. So she does. And while she's in the mill, she encounters sexual harassment and her, she has a best friend that, that gets attacked by the mill supervisor. And all of these things are frequently occur. So our stories are built from deep qualitative research with people that are living in these circumstances in these communities so that the scenarios that are built in are not coming from us. But she has a relationship with a teacher that from her school before she worked at the mill who invites her to apply for a essay contest. And she writes an essay about her experience and then she wins and she's able to go back to school and um, she gets herself out of that situation. So that's, that's kind of the story arc. But we took that, split it into scenes, and then I built a curriculum that I think is 18 sessions. And each session like hinges off of that scene from the film and then covers a wide variety of topics. Everything from female reproductive health to communication skills, self-esteem, resilience. Yeah, <laughs> a huge range. And a variety of local NGO staff were trained in how to implement the curriculum and they then trained others. So I did the initial training and then they trained, I mean, dozens and dozens of other leaders in order to facilitate these groups. And these groups meet in the same villages every couple weeks over the course of eight months. And so it's the same group of young girls that meet with the same facilitator and they build these relationships with one another and with their facilitator over the course of a really long time. I mean, long time in, in the sense of, you know, what you might imagine of a media <laughs> intervention. And so the media piece of this is kind of one modality of many in this project. The other modalities are role play, games, self-reflection, you know, different types of um, pedagogy to help these young girls really access and encounter their own power, their own brilliance, their own wisdom in order to make new decisions for themselves and protect themselves. So that has been a really incredible intervention at that scale. And the Freedom Fund was able to support something of that size. And it did so well that they're repeating it. And they were also, they did a simultaneous baseline study, just prevalence of bonded labor. And they have a variety of other interventions, so we can't tie it all to this one. Um, but then they did a comprehensive end line as well, evaluation of this project. And I would have to pull the report for the numbers, but the prevalence of bonded labor reduced significantly during the course of this project. and we were specifically measuring resilience within as, as an outcome measure, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, knowledge and attitudes and wanting them to retain key bits of information, like what is the minimum wage? What are your worker rights as a young girl working in a mill? Information that's actually really important for their own self-advocacy and self-efficacy. But yeah, we saw really wonderful results. And then when you, you know, 
the, in addition to the results that you measured, what kind of feedback did you get from the individual girls, the participants, as far as what personal transformation or mm -hmm. how it in, impacted them individually that sometimes one might say is more qualitative data yeah. on how it's measured, but nonetheless is still an important story to be told? Yeah, well, one thing I had them do, which I still haven't been able to read through them all, but I had the young girls keep a journal. And so week by week, they would answer a few questions about how they're feeling and how they're doing and um, what they liked the most about that session or whatever, just more open-ended. And so I have a collection of dozens and dozens of these journals, as well as the final exercise is for them to write a letter to Priya the main character of the film yeah. and these letters are so touching just you've changed my life you're my best friend I want to be like you like thank you for showing me what's possible for me like I don't feel alone anymore a lot of real attachment to Priya as a as a person and I hoped that that could happen but I don't you know I can't expect to know exactly how someone will resonate um, with a story, but that far surpassed my um, expectations in terms of she became she became like a real friend to these girls and a confidant. Even there's a there's a culture in in this area where these young girls really don't share what's going on with them. Um, they don't tell their parents. They don't even tell each other. There's a lot of holding of really deep pain. In isolation and this as along with the groups really seem to kind of blast that open and allow real solidarity to take place yeah and i can imagine because of the way you describe it as the structure and that it isn't just a one-off there's a period of time where they're coming together and human beings being wired to want connection and building that connection with other human beings I can imagine that could be very helpful to facilitate mm -hmm. that process where there might be a level of safety in that group of shared experience that they may not help have elsewhere. Exactly. The room that they're in. Exactly. Exactly. And often these facilitators were formerly mill workers themselves, for example. So that piece is really powerful too. And so it's impossible to isolate which did what. Was it the film? Was it the group? Was it the frequency? Was it the exit? Like, it doesn't really matter. From a science perspective, you know, it matters. But from a programmatic perspective, it, it, yeah, it's all of that, right, that makes it work. So you, you, you started out, um, we talked about you entered through journalism and wanting to be a correspondent. And just as an aside, when you said that, my very first thing was I went into journalism school. And it was after reading Joan, mm -hmm. you know, when mm -hmm. I wanted more correspondent. So it's just kind of interesting how going from journalist to, you know, to more behavioral scientist um, type mm -hmm. work. But you, you know, you worked in journalism, you know, and then media seems like a very natural extension, especially because you're in broadcast um, journalism and then working in conflict affected areas move together. And then you've talked a lot about the behavioral um, science aspect and how you wove all those things together, but it also led you to study more in, um, directly in the field mm -hmm. of psychology. 
So what, what was that pivot point that brought you and where do you see this moving? Where, where, where would Lindsay then take this integration of space and with your current studies and where does this go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm working on these projects with researchers. Um, so the first mobile cinema project with Queen's University Belfast, it was really exciting for me to see what this project was doing and to see that advancing science in some form and creating new knowledge that could be built on and others could use and take forward into their programming that felt like a really integral component to this work that had some integrity behind it. So I often, it's hard to share learnings from what's working, what's not in a way that can be adapted and used in real time and brought forward. And we're all doing such interesting things all over the world, but is that being shared and and used? So I think the science piece of that was intriguing to me in that way. And as well as I felt that it really mattered that I knew with some certainty and still science is not, I mean, you know, it's all, there's a objectivity or subjectivity to it, no matter if it's quantitative or qualitative, but it, I wanted to go beyond a project evaluation and be able to say, no, that I can see what this has done and this is worth investing into again, or it's worth pivoting and adapting in this way. Um, And not just because I can tell you how many people went through the program, but I can actually assess um, what kind of change has has occurred and what that could lead to. It felt ethical to me. So I I wanted to go back uh, to grad school and learn for myself how to run research projects and use that to augment the way I was thinking about how narratives could influence people too. I just knew that it would all tie together in an important way um, if I wanted to continue making films to influence people's psychology. I wanted to understand what those psychological mechanisms were that I was tapping into more on an intuitive level as an artist during these years, but um, I knew there was just a lot, lot to learn. So I went to Cambridge University and did my master's in social psychology. And during that year, I was able to run a research project in Central African Republic, utilizing virtual reality technology and exploring if members of different religious groups encountering one another through this virtual space could reduce prejudice towards one another. that excited me because this is a safe way for people to encounter each other. And often in what are called contact interventions where you're bringing two different sides together in one space, that's the the literature shows that that can often benefit the group in the majority, but often harms the minority group because it can be really difficult for them to be in those scenarios um, and receive the stigma or marginalization or whatever it is all over again, just by showing up in that intervention. So when they're into the contact where you're actually, you know, the traditional contact of bringing people together, contact physically in a dialogue or discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And those are used, you know, all over the place. They've been used for a long time, building on Gordon Alport's 
original literature in the 50s on contact theory. And he outlined a certain number of conditions that should be met to really formally fulfill this contact theory that he created. But since it's those mixed kind of results in terms of how beneficial that really is for the minority, it definitely helps the majority group because they now see this new perspective. They, you know, have become aware of experiences that others are having that they didn't know about beforehand, you know, all of that. But that also is, yeah, it's, it's just their um, education, their evolution kind of at the expense of someone else. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think this is really fascinating from a peace building standpoint. It's often contact theory, bringing groups together is a very traditional mode of doing things. And I think sometimes the criticism might be around, well, it may help this group. And and, and I'm I'm not even so sure very many people even talk about the disparity between the power dynamics and that Mm -hmm. one group is benefited. Oftentimes what you'll hear is, well, it may help for a temporary period of time, but the minute people go back to their communities, then Mm -hmm. just it doesn't change because they're going back into the same set of structures that exist. So you can't really scale it up, but you're talking about it from a very different angle. You're talking about just the, from a kind of behavioral science standpoint, just the very nature of bringing folks together aside from does it have a peace building benefit. It can have an individual um, mm-hmm. harm byproduct too. So right. I'm very curious, but you talk a little bit more about that and what is some guidance you might from the, your studies and experiences provide to peace builders around bringing groups together one and then mm-hmm. i would love to hear a lot more about the virtual reality given i do that with my, my teenage son who mm-hmm. has a headset and i'm in there <laughs> i found it super interesting and really you know uh, really feeling like you're there. And so there's some issues right. here that are positive, but also challenging too. Yeah. Your yeah. space and your body and your nervous system doesn't always, you know, play one way or the other. Oh, this is fake or not. Cause it's responding sometimes even to the, what is technically fake, you know, it, it's just mm-hmm. it's alive. So I'd love to, again, to hear about more about the contact theory from what you're learning and then pivot over to virtual reality and what that might mm-hmm. look like in the future. Yeah, I think you really kind of helped reframe that in a helpful way but I think for peace builders considering okay what is the purpose of bringing these groups together I mean yes it's there's a lot of literature behind it that shows that it it can really help diffuse tensions or help build understanding that's all very true so I'm not saying this to introduce this idea that you should never do these contact interventions or these are bad or anything Um, but there is a real caveat a real risk specifically to groups that are less holders of power in this particular conflict or dynamic. And, you know, often I'll just use the example of bringing um, white and black people together in the United States to do kind of racial reconciliation work. That's also been done for a long time. And we're in a place now in the last year where, of course, there's just a lot more vocalization around things that have been harmful, haven't worked. And that's one of them. It's important for white people to learn and educate themselves with the resources that are available. They don't need to ask black people to tell them about their experience being black to understand the impact of racism. There's a lot of other ways to learn about that. 
besides asking your your black friend to you know have to go back into their particular negative experiences to tell you about what's happened to them i think it's really rewiring okay who's centered in this um intervention is it the people in power we're centering their uh, their growth their learning their awareness or are we centering the people who don't have power and if we're centering the people that don't have power what would actually help them and what would benefit them what do they need do they need to be in a room with the people that have oppressed them or marginalized them is that going to be helpful to them or do they need something else so i think there's just a fundamental assumption at baseline that it's helpful for everyone to be together in the same room and that's just not really true and i think every context is of course so different so layered and needs to be parsed out but in this in this particular setting in central african republic where civil war for for a number of years and groups are split along religious lines it's really not a religious war but they are split and segregated along religious lines, Christian and Muslim. And Muslims have been kind of nationally blamed for the conflict, even though that's untrue. They're also the minority in terms of numbers of the population. And they live in little uh, enclaves, basically very cut off from the rest of um, the population. And they have to protect themselves. And um, they're, the mo- almost every mosque was burned down Um, at the height of violence a couple of years ago. And bringing them together really doesn't help them. And of course, I can't speak for for every every, every person in any kind of generalizable way. And there could be really powerful, beautiful, interpersonal ways for that to take place. So that, that is very true. However, I wanted to explore a way that you could scale a contact intervention while protecting um, the Muslim population. That was kind of my premise of curiosity. And this felt like a really good way to do that because virtual reality is, as you mentioned, has this kind of presencing component, has, it interacts with the brain in a different way than 2D media, the Stanford virtual, Interaction Lab has shown that it can store memories and your long-term memory by watching in VR. It stimulates your senses in a way that a 2D piece does not. And so it felt to me like the closest way to get people face-to-face with someone is in a virtual environment instead of 2D and certainly instead of like bringing them together in real life. And that also has logistical realities that can be put people at risk. Transporting bodies um, in an area of conflict might not be a wise idea either. So with the virtual reality, how do you bring people together in virtual reality? So I've, you know, the experiences that I've had either this real happy place, which is a biosphere that my son found for me, that is just an, that's an existing one where I go in, but don't interact with anybody. And then others where, you know, you've seen the VR headset experience where you might walk through a refugee camp that was Mm -hmm. developed a few years ago. So you're interacting with individuals, but they're not interacting with you. Yeah. What kind of um, interaction is this type of experience that you're talking about? Is it static? Is it walking into someone else's experience or is it a co-experience? 
So this is like step one of VR in the sense that it's just 360 video. So I would like to test at another point the ability to interact two ways. But so by contact, meaning it's a story about a Muslim man and what he experienced during the war. And it's a true story. And he actually played himself in the film, but it's, so it's a documentary hybrid form, meaning like some scenes are reenacted, but by him and his story is all true. But the story is that he actually was attacked by a group of Christian rebels and um, his brother was killed by this group. And then he was a volunteer during the time at the Red Cross in the Muslim enclave in Bangui and PK-5. And one day a man is brought in to be treated who was wounded in a battle. And it's the man who killed his brother. And he had to choose what to do in that moment. Do I take revenge? Here's my opportunity. Or do I not? And he didn't. He treated him. He tended his wound. And that was that. But his very ordinary, but yet extraordinary display of courage, of nonviolence, of, you know, nonpartisanship in the face of something so, I can't even imagine, so painful and difficult, I thought would be a powerful counter Uh, to the narratives that are more dominant in the CAR about who Muslims are. Muslims are coded as violent, dangerous, bad, that they're responsible for the war. And and so I showed that film to only members of the Christian majority. And I mean, on a statistical level, I had statistical drops in prejudice towards Muslims in Um, intention to donate to a Muslim family. So I wanted to capture not just prejudice, which is an attitude, but behavior, which I measured as an intention. So that was really exciting. But what was really interesting in my qualitative interviews was I asked what religion is Guillaume, the main character in the film. And the majority of people said he was Christian. Even though he says he's a Muslim in the film, he's clearly a Muslim. And that really fascinated me. So there's this interesting disconnect. And so their prejudice towards Muslims decreased, yet the ability to reconceptualize this person still in order to maintain kind of the cognitive schema of what was happening in the CAR, he still had to be a Christian for it to make sense to people because only Christians forgive was some some of the phrasing I would get. But I had people say just about the VR experience that it felt like they were there, that it felt like it was happening to them, that they've never experienced anything like that before. I mean, you know, no one has seen a VR film in CAR, but um, that being the case, I wanted to know if the effects could just be attributable to how novel the experience itself was. And so I had a control condition in which people watched a VR film, but it was just B-roll scenes of Bungie. There was no story. And that there was a, a difference between the two. So it really is the contact story that made the difference, not just the medium. Wow, that's really interesting. Because it definitely that the contact, that immersion 
that feeling, mm-hmm. that, that sense that you're with the person right. in a relationship with them, like you said, rather than just static, which, right. which is yeah. powerful. Or people thinking that they've now lived his life, that they experienced what he experienced. And, and with that, we also wanted to be really careful to not include anything in the film that could be too triggering or harmful or damaging in any way because it's so immersive, because it, it can feel like you're really there. I think there's a real ethical question around what you show someone. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't need to be intense and violent or anything like that. So we didn't show any violence. There was no, um, you didn't see the death of the brother or anything like that. Yeah, and you mentioned something around ethics. And also I think what's really powerful for the work you're talking about is integrating in the behavioral science aspect into um, programming specifically and how important it is when we look at the principles around do no harm in the work, mm-hmm. conflict related work. And I think mm-hmm. about two nodes that you've got one that you've got to control, which you can't do in a, in a open contact meeting is as much you can have the best right. facilitator in the world. And you mm-hmm. can have people to support and kind of navigate what might be going on. But if there's a a, um, a reaction or a trauma effect, then you know you need to navigate it as best as you can in person. That's not always th- there, and you right. get to craft in the story, like you said, not just his story, but also when you're working with him. When you were talking about, it, I thought about um, you know there's calls for truth and racial healing commissions in the U.S. or other types of commissions for reconciliation. We've seen them overseas. And oftentimes people who've been affected come and testify. But I always wonder, as also as a former prosecutor, when I used to have elderly mm-hmm. victims come, I could see them being re-victimized in ways. Mm-hmm. That was very difficult to witness in that system, mm-hmm. but that was the way the system was set up for victims to testify. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine doing this, you're able to kind of titrate and work through the story. So when he is telling it, it's in a, it's in a way where I mean, I'm assuming I'm just, you have to, that there's a little bit more aid, there's more agency and control on, on how he. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And my invitation to him was, will you co-direct this with me? Mm -hmm. This is not me telling your story. This is really you telling your story. And so that delicate process means that the long sit-down interview we did had a lot of lead up to it, a lot of time and cushion, you know, and then it's just me and him. It's not a room full of people, full of, in this case, you know, Christians <laughs> staring at him and how he might metabolize that in his body can be somatically very activating. So the process of, yeah, telling the story is potentially much safer and and potentially more supportive and healing. And he wanted to then be play himself in the film. And he said that it actually really helped him process through it and heal and navigate through his own memories as we were making this together. And then he got to see the film. He signed off on it. He provided edit suggestions, what he liked or didn't or wanted included or not. I mean, he had full editorial control. And that was also, of course, very important so that he felt like he was in control, yeah, in control of how this was 
portrayed and uh, that really mattered to me too. And you mentioned the somatic aspect. How did that come into your um, work and, and your approach, the somatic reaction that you mentioned and how that fits within the work that you're doing? Mm-hmm. Well, there's, a, of course, just so much um, important work being done now on how trauma is stored in the body and the nervous system's role in trauma retention or post-traumatic growth even. And trauma first aid, let's say, or psychological first aid. I did a course at Harvard Humanitarian, sorry, a course at Harvard Medical School, a year-long certificate in global mental health and refugee recovery. And really understanding the epigenetic um, impact of how traumatic experiences can be stored in the body and then turns genes on or off that can predispose someone to anxiety or depression or any number of, of challenges has all recontextualized how important it is to know how to settle the body in interventions or in conversation or also really basic tools that we have used in our workshops with communities for years now, but breathing techniques, relaxation techniques, um, safe space imagining, all of this is very much working with the body at a non-cognitive level and really bypassing the thinking mind and going into the fight or flight area. And there's tools that are so simple that can be really, really supportive to, especially with people that are still living in the midst of ongoing conflict. The communities we work in, they're not in post-conflict yet. So asking someone to, you know, reflect back on the worst thing that happened to you and let's talk about it is in my um, experience, really unwise and can be really damaging yet helping provide someone with tools that can support their body to regulate in the here and now is life-changing. So you're really talking about this type of understanding, but also action and incorporation as being an imperative or central to programming around Mm -hmm. whether it's media or bringing folks together for peace building, whatever that is, that that they're very intertwined in in how you would view that. Yeah, I definitely do. I definitely do. And whether our projects, a project we did in the CAR with Search for Common Ground called Zoquizo, the structure of that, um, those screenings were actually more one-off. So that was kind of unusual for the type of work that we've done. But within that, it was a several hour session. So it was still a workshop kind of format. But within that, there were tools and educational offerings for people to settle their bodies or leave the room or not participate, just helping people have agency even in their participation at all. Otherwise, yeah, it could be causing more harm. Exactly. So with everything that you've been working on, if you could wave, we talked about magic earlier. So if you could wave a magical wand through, through, where would you see two things? One is where would you see research um, being helpful in this kind of integration that you've been talking about? And then the other part is what 
have you learned as a peace builder who's now integrated um, the behavioral science knowledge and practice and experience into the work you're doing with the media as a, a platform or a vehicle, what would be like the top, let's say, one, two, three things that really come top of mind and body and your mm-hmm. system that really resonates as being really critically important to help guide um, future work? So research mm-hmm. brands that you think are top of the mind, yes, and your magic wand will make it be so. And then the other mm-hmm. one, um, <laughs> ideas that you've had or experiences that could help um, others engaged in this in the peace building space. Mm-hmm. On the research side, I think this is a conversation that's definitely happening, but specifically in the prejudice research world, I was just at a conference, the social psychology conference that happens once a year. And Elizabeth Pollock from Princeton, who's done really amazing work over her career and her colleagues were talking about how the field of prejudice reduction research really needs to move out of the measurement of kind of personal opinions and attitudes and these small scale interventions into systems. So how can how can systemic change kind of be looked at as a target for reducing prejudice, not just someone's individual attitude? Because as we know, that doesn't necessarily mean that their behavior will be X, Y, Z. So I think magic wand, I would also like to see applied applied research, quote unquote, destigmatized as any kind of less than in terms of importance as compared to lab-based research, if there's still this kind of dichotomy, like, oh, applied research, that's nice, that's you're doing things in the real world versus real science is happening in the lab. And that's ridiculous. So all research is research, science is science. And I want to see more emphasis and rigor placed on the type of research that's happening out in the real world in complex settings where there's so many factors you can't control, which makes doing the science hard, but also to me makes it actually really real and useful for peace builders or others that are available or willing or could take this up and utilize it in their work. And so there's still this split between you know, the academy where these learnings are happening, and then people that are trying to implement programming on the ground to help serve people and enhance human flourishing. So magic wand, these communities can come together and meaningful collaborations that can see the best of human um, behavioral science research applied in settings to see lives improved. And that the people at the forefront would be coming from those communities or coming from those countries and decentering European American researchers. And <laughs> yeah, there needs to be a, a, a real flip in terms of who's generating this knowledge. Okay, the other question. Um, yeah, the other one. Um, so brilliant on the research side. And then now, which to your applied to your applied research um, point. So now on the practice side, what have you learned through practice or through research? Just your experiences that really come top of mind that are you you would like to share with other peace builders. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I mean, I guess this is no surprise based on what I just said, but like really re... <laughs> okay, one, I mean, the funding cycle needs to change so that the opportunity for longer term programming has legs and people aren't constricted to these really short funding cycles that are beholden to funding bodies. That's kind of obvious. But in terms of really reimagining what it looks like to work with local communities and again, decentering experts, especially if those experts um, aren't from those communities. My dream is that my job isn't necessary and there are filmmakers from the Congo, from Central African Republic that are doing this work and they're funded to do it. And that's already happened a little bit. Um, we did a, a couple different projects in CAR and I worked with some really amazing people, Bashir Stone, Orfe, Zaza Bumoy, who are filmmakers in CAR. They worked with me on three projects. And since then they've gotten now their own grant from Invisible Children to do mobile cinema on their own. And to me, that is just so thrilling. Like I'm not involved in it, they're doing it. And I want to see more of that happen where really film industry film education is decolonized and given away and it isn't me honestly as a white American woman coming in to tell a story at all. Maybe I'm supporting with mentorship or something on the side, but helping to be creative in terms of how and who get to tell their own stories. No, thank you for that. It's always helpful to have um, you know, nuggets of things from experiences and research just relayed. So in closing, is there anything else that you would like to share? Anything that's just calling out? Mm, I guess the last thing, which kind of goes to what I just said is just how many incredible ingenious ideas for peace building exist within communities if we would just listen. And a couple of years ago, I did a research project with invisible children to look at um, how to promote peaceful defection from former combatants who are leading the Lord's resistance army and, or former abductees, not combatants. So members of communities from CAR and DRC that had been abducted into the LRA and were maybe porters or helpers held against their will were able to escape and then came back home and they're facing a number of challenges. And so we wanted to come up with some kind of intervention to help. And I did a month long listening tour in CAR and DRC and I interviewed 90 people that had survived LRA violence and just asked them, what does defection mean to you? What does forgiveness mean to you? What would you like to see happen here? And out of all of that, they gave me incredible ideas and one of them was to create local peace committees that would reach out to the LRA themselves and try to draw them out of the bush peacefully so they started making these come home packages like a little bit of food um, with a message and they would go drop them on the trails where they knew the LRA moved as a way to peacefully ask them to come back um, 
they created messages on billboards, billboards that they made and put them out in the forest where they knew the LRA was moving. And these peace committees have been pivotal in the last few years in inviting um, formerly abducted community members to feel safe enough to come home. And that idea came from these communities. Now they're leading that. And I just love that so much. So to me, it's this beautiful reminder of ask and listen and just find out a way to implement the ideas that are already kind of bubbling up um, because those are the ones that will work. But the wisdom is there if you're listening. Yeah, it really is. So thanks so much, Lindsay. It was such a pleasure to have you here today on the Think Peace podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us this week for the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. Please visit our website, www.thinkpeacepodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to tune in next week. And remember to think peace.